This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance and Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun, and that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. The year is 1989, and I want to be where the podcasts are. The movie, The Little Mermaid. Welcome to Unspooled. I am Paul Shear. I'm a lover of film, and I love to talk about film with my co-host, who is a critic who writes for the New York Times, Amy Nicholson. Amy, so excited to chat with you about this movie today. Oh, Paul, you've been a part of my world for so long. And now <laughs> here we go, enriching our bond one more episode by one more episode. And I got to say, not dragging your feet here because I know how you feel about Disney and animated films. But this is, you know, I feel like you're coming into our conversation about Little Mermaid with an open mind. Because The Little Mermaid is a stepping stone, a big stepping stone for Disney. And I think revolutionizes the model of the animated film. You know... I try to act all cool and intellectual and blah, blah, blah on this podcast. I do a very bad job of it. And here I may as well just say, when I was a kid, I had a McDonald's toy set of, of Little Mermaid. And yeah, it was in my bathtub. What am I going to yes, do? I, I can't Amy, be cool. I love it. <laughs> I love it. And no, I'll say this as well. What I really like about our discussion today is the deeper reading that we're giving to this movie. I think a lot of people look at this movie on a surface level and we go a little bit deeper in our conversation and talk about the gay panic that was going on at the time and how that kind of informs this movie. And it's a lot more subversive than you would actually think. You know, Amy, I got gadgets, I got gizmos, and I got this thing over here that, you know what it does? It unspools it. The year is 1989, and it has been 30 years since Disney has made its last animated fairy tale, 1959's Sleeping Beauty. 30 years, right? Walt Disney has been dead for almost 25 years, and the cartoon division is also almost dead itself. And according to Roy Disney, the department is creatively stagnant, and it's getting its tails kicked by its rivals at Don Bluth, many of them former Disney folk who got unhappy and left. Now, the battle between Disney and Bluth is brutal, 
and kind of personal. For several films now, they've been releasing their movies on the same day, which has just proven that audiences like Bluth better. I mean, I do love me some American Tale, but it is very true that at this time, corporate raiders are circling the entire Disney company. It is a fish that is limping in the water. It could easily be taken over. If you've seen Secession, you can imagine what's happening. So in 1985, Michael Eisner is hired to keep Disney together, to try to hold this corporation together however he can. But Eisner's not an animation guy. He says openly he has never even seen one of the classic Disney cartoons. Never saw it back when he was a kid. Caught up with him finally when he had to when he was an adult. Not his thing. Eisner puts all of his energy into the parks. And he says he thinks animation is just too expensive to bother with. He takes the animators who have been in the Burbank studio forever and he throws them out. He puts them in this warehouse in Glendale and he is not hiding his desire to fire everyone in animation and shut the animation department down for good. So the animators know that their next film is their last chance to save their jobs. Luckily, though, they have a good idea. First, they'll make the film that Walt Disney said he always wanted to make. The Little Mermaid. It's a throwback to the princess era of Snow White and Cinderella and Sleeping Beauty, but they'll modernize it. The princess isn't going to be so pretty and passive. She's going to be stubborn, modern, like an 80s teen. And while, yes, the prince is going to fall in love with her while she's backlit and smiling and singing, and yes, she's still going to lose her voice, she's not going to die. And we're going to build this around some great, big Broadway-style songs from the guys who wrote Little Shop of Horrors, Howard Ashman and Alan Menken. Ashman and Menken were like, uh, Disney? I don't know. You guys are pretty lame, right? But we can give it a shot. The Little Mermaid was released on November 17th, 1989. And it was a huge hit. It was a company-saving hit. You could say it was a company-shaping hit that is arguably responsible for the dominoes that began to fall and the fact that today Disney is the biggest player in Hollywood even though Disney still really likes to fire people by the tens of thousands, support the writer's strike. So what was in the zeitgeist that day in 1989? It was a hair metal ballad that I am personally aghast and hurt and very upset with myself that I did not know. It is about falling in love with a girl just because of how she looks, and the girl does not have to talk at all. It is bad English when I see you smile. Did you know this song? I didn't I, know this song. Where no, was I? No, I did not know this song. <laughs> Man, I wasn't listening to number one pop radio this week. You know, this is an interesting story because I'm not really familiar with the original tale of The Little Mermaid. And that seems to me from my research to be an incredibly depressing tale, which is a little bit unlike the stuff that Walt Disney has done. So I, I do find it interesting that this is like a passion project for Disney. You know, they never got to, but he wanted to take something that ultimately is a pretty depressing piece of material. Yeah, I mean, he loves his princess tales. He loves his movies that are centered around true love's kiss. You know, oh, <laughs> this magical kiss that will make you be for together and happy and alive and whatever. Snow White, Sleeping Beauty, this is his thing. Loves it, loves it, loves it, loves it. But yeah, The Little Mermaid, huge in Copenhagen, hugely sad. If you go to Copenhagen, you can actually see a statue of the classic Little Mermaid, the Hans Christian Andersen Little Mermaid in the water. It's there. She's lovely. 
But in the real story, she is brought onto land through the powers of a sea witch. But the sea witch says every time she takes a step, she's going to feel like knives are racing up and down her legs. And she's not going to win the prince over. She's just going to die and turn into flotsam floating on the sea. And and by the way, this is a story in which the lead character, the princess or the little mermaid, commits suicide. Like, that's how it ends. She faces a variety of antagonists and then dies by suicide. It, It really is a Herculean feat to figure out how to retool this. But, you know, I know we're throwing a lot of shade at Eisner at this point. Eisner is about the new, you know, uh, Roger Rabbit is a hit. So let's focus there. Let's go bigger in the Touchstone movies. But I kind of believe, and here's my theory, that you needed the hip Hollywood Eisner to bring back Disney animation because pairing Ashman and Mencken to this project allowed it to be subversive and cool and different. Like they were hot. And they brought that energy in. I mean, for the first time, this is a Disney movie where the songs actually progress the story, right? If you think about something like Whistle While You Work, right? That doesn't really progress the story. It just, I guess, is flavor for the story. But they're doing something that Broadway does. The songs are important to the plot. And here, it, it I think, really revolutionizes what we're going to see in all the Disney movies following this, you know? The Beauty and the Beast, The Lion King, Aladdin, it becomes poppier in a way. Like these songs become memorable the way that people, you know, had been listening to Hamilton or or the people way people listen to Broadway musicals in their car. Now it's like there's something catchier about this. Yeah. I mean, I don't know at this time when the last time was that Disney had a cartoon where the song was all over the radio. The where now it just feels kind of standard. In this area, they were definitely getting their asses kicked by Bluth. You know, Bluth, somewhere out there, that song dominated the 80s. That was my mom's wedding song, Amy. No. Yes. Somewhere no. out there was my mom's wedding song. I have a That's about people who are far apart from each other, though. Believe me, it fits perfectly with my mom. It's a bizarre, <laughs> a bizarre. By the way, you know what the wedding song that we danced to at that wedding? Oh. Uh, Billy Joel's Don't Go Changin'. Don't go changing to try and please. Wow. Just think about that for a mother and son to be dancing to that. Don't go changing. Like, <laughs> what the <laughs> fuck is going on? So my house was full of Fifel merchandise. But it's interesting you talk about You Bluth. came from a Fifel house? I mean, yes, because it was the wedding son that my mom had. But Is this why I don't get a lot of traction for you when I say I really want to do an American Tale someday? Are you traumatized by American Tale? There is something about American Tale that gives me like the, the tingles. Like, ugh. But, you know, I don't know I what it is. I this movie, Paul. All right. I'll, you know what? I will give it a, its fair shot. I will give it its fair shot. I just, there is something about it that, like, is in my subconscious where I'm like, oh, five old. But 
I will Let, also let's face say, your demons. Can we face will, your demons on I this? I will face my demons with you, as always, hand in hand, uh, walking into the the darkness of a theater. Um, but I will say this. I know Bluth is hot, but it's interesting, culturally, Bluth is kind of nothing now. Like, I don't think that people look back at, like, the land before time and think, like, oh, yes, that was a, a classic. It kind of was hot for the moment. The the biggest Bluth connection I have is like Space Ace and Dragon's Lair. I mean, those were the games that I begged my parents to give me many quarters to play and I could never get past the first level. But I love being able to play a cartoon. But beyond that, I don't really have a connection to like Bluth movies. And I don't think that they have a cultural significance. Except for Fievel. I mean, I am struck <laughs> by how depressing the kids' movies of this period were. You know, that that... I think the movie that Bluth does around the time that they're doing Little Mermaid is like All Dogs Go to Heaven, which I haven't seen, but sounds like such a sad, depressing premise. And I wonder how much of my personality was shaped with the fact that I was I was born during a time of like bizarre, corrupt, strange kids movies. You know, definitely watching Willy Wonka from our last episode, like on the VHS player all the time. But also I really liked The Black Cauldron when I was a kid. I wasn't alive when Fox and Hound came out, but I love The Fox and Hound. And I, I wonder if maybe part of my knee-jerk, like, kids' movies should be dark and scary and dramatic is just coming out of the kids' movies that I grew up in. And, and part of me resents that they got so colorful and fun. Well, look, Secret of Nim was a movie that scared the shit out of me. I mean, it's kind of like Watership Down, right? I mean, it's... Watership Down is what traumatized my boyfriend. Oh, really? Wow, you see, yeah. like... These movies were dark, and I think there's a part of me that doesn't like rewatching them or even going back to them because they weren't fun, right? They were good movies, I guess, but they weren't like, I need to rewatch it over and over again. I, I don't know. It, like, I remember just being like burdened by The Secret of Nim. It felt like a slog to get through, even though I kind of liked it. I don't know. Or, or maybe I didn't want to watch it again. And I feel like that's the way I felt about all of the Bluth movies. It's like, I was dragged to it once, it was fine once, and I never want to see it again. I mean, what you're describing is how I wonder if small children feel about today's Pixar, where it's like, I don't care about a dead jazz singer who becomes a cat. That's Mm. not too far off from this, like, dogs go to heaven depressing universe. It's interesting, though, because I find my kids connecting to Pixar and Disney movies in, in ways that are always unexpected. They loved Luca. And Luca was a big part of a cultural conversation, at least within the group of friends that we had, right? So there there are these movies that, you know, I think connect differently with kids versus with the general population. I really loved that jazz movie in The Cat, which I can't remember the name of it right now. That's how much I loved it. But I thought that was Soul. actually really... Soul. Soul. I thought that was really beautiful. And I feel like Pixar does this interesting thing where some of their movies are for everyone. Some of their movies, I think, definitely skew more adult Uh, And I think Disney's been bridging that gap as Disney now has been doing a little bit more of movies that look like Pixar movies. Um, And I can't quite tell the difference anymore. And maybe that's just the streaming thing. Yeah. Yeah. No, I feel like it's all sort of blurring. Like Elemental, that new movie coming out. I'm like, is that Pixar? Is that Disney? I don't know. Uh, I'm sure a Google search would tell me, but that's how much the lines are blurring. I feel like 10 years ago, we would have known. 10 years ago, it would have been really clear. I mean, I do feel like Disney is in kind of a murky place right now. Because, like, yeah, because I think Disney co-opted Pixar and took a lot of their style. And so you go like, oh, well, Disney movies maybe are a little bit more light and airy and Pixar movies are a little bit more deep 
I, I guess. I mean, I don't know. There are there are these things, but they look the same now. It kind of makes me think about my theory about what it must be like to have a sibling, which is, you know, when there's two people in the same house, you sort of force them into different directions, even if it's not fair. Like, right. is Pixar being forced to get more and more depressing to be the serious sibling because Disney's stealing its look? <laughs> well, or is it that Disney considers itself, and this is a big argument, and we'll get back to Little Mermaid in one second. Like, what is Disney? And we're at the same moment here with Michael Eisner. What is Disney? Because what's being profitable for Disney is Roger Rabbit, these Touchstone films, The Park. They're like, we just did Splash. We don't even, Katzenberg didn't even want to do The Little Mermaid because he's like, we should do a sequel to Splash. What, and what we're on the verge of right now, if you're following any of the trades, is will Disney absorb Hulu? And so far, Disney Plus as a streamer has kept itself like, no, we're Disney Plus, we're a family streamer, but they're realizing that that doesn't actually help them. And what they're doing is they're reaching out and they're like, hey, if we had all the Hulu stuff, if we had Abbott Elementary here, it would be better for us. If we create this bundle that is all the things, it's not just family, we do better. So this is a moment where I think Disney rose up again as a family thing. We got Star Wars, we got Marvel, we got Pixar. And now they're like, oh, that doesn't sustain we need to keep on adding subversive elements. So we may be getting into another place where we're getting murky again. And I think that's, I think we can really relate to this moment where Little Mermaid comes out because it is a throwback in a time where Disney is experiencing this loss of its identity. But in many ways, the Little Mermaid takes what it was and takes where it's going and pushes it forward with this movie that is a gigantic hit that's poppy, that's popular, and makes you realize, oh, that's a Disney film. And all of a sudden, it's a Disney film. And Bluth films, I don't think, are as distinguishable as Disney films. Can I say that as you were describing where Disney is today, I just started to picture Ariel's grotto of horrors, serial killer assemblage, Ariel is the bad guy from Seven assembling all of her things about humanity. And I was like, yeah, that is what Disney's doing. They're like, here we got Fox. We got this. We want Hulu. We want it all. We got Marvel, blah, blah, blah. blah. And I just want King Trident slash the Justice Department to come and take their Trident and blow it all up and like let us have some independent media back. Blow it all up, please. They're like, oh, we have everything, but we want more. <laughs> but I think where Disney is best, and this is what Pixar does too, it really lets creators create. And I think when Disney tries to be the creator, it fails. You can have something like what James Gunn did with Guardians of the Galaxy. That's uniquely James Gunn, right? That's his vision. I think that Kevin Feige oversees Marvel, but gives directors enough leash to make something that can distinguish them from the pack. You know, and I think Disney is best when creators get to really have their hands on a product. And Pixar, the reason why they co-opted Pixar was because it was a creator-driven field. It wasn't like what the market needs. It was like what a creator wants to say. And this is what happens here with Ashman. Because like Ashman, like a, a young Walt Disney, right? He gets in and he's like, let's do this. Let me work with the, like, he's treating it like a Broadway show, you know, just working every person and voice talent. It's not a separate process. It's not the, I guess, the old way of doing things of 
the animators are animating, and obviously they're such a big part of this, but he is someone who is treating this like putting on a show. And I can't speak to exactly how it was before this, but it seems like this is a a very big change. Not in the style of animation, but in the way the animation is being done. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. They're working so closely with, you know, Jody Benson ahead of time and other different like models, you know, being like, dress here, lie here, put on this swimsuit, lie on this rock and like using so much real life posturing, try to model what this animation should be, which, yes, they have always had a history of doing that. We talked about this a lot when we if we go all the way back to our Snow White episode, one of the ones that we did in the original 100 uh, episodes of the show. But, yeah, they're taking it. Super seriously here. I mean, I love going through the special features, the making of The Little Mermaid, and they're, you know, watching Octopi and being like, how are we going to do this? I remember Roy Disney was especially interested in making sure that we depicted Ursula properly. I will make you a potion that will turn you into a human for three days. We looked at a lot of video clips of Octopi. If they're moving slowly on the bottom of the ocean, they will actually look like they're walking. And then when they're above the bottom, and they're moving quickly, they'll use their jet propulsion with the tentacles. And they're talking openly about their other influences. Like, Ariel is also just straight-up Alyssa Milano from Who's the Boss? Our perfect idea of what an 80s teenager should be. When you watch old clips of Who's the Boss, you're like, oh, yeah, that's just her hair. She's got those bangs. That's exactly what's happening. You know, like, in the 80s, all those girls had those gigantic bangs. Oh, my gosh, I fell in love with those girls. I mean, I had... a. I had a poster of Alyssa Milano above my bed in a hockey jersey. It was the best thing in my, like, that was my ideal woman, you know, as a a young man, Um, you know. And And when you watch, like, old episodes, you basically just hear Little Mermaid coming out of who's the boss's voice. Max 21 and I'm 18. You were just as young when you got married. Well, yes, but my marriage was not a great success. But, Angela, we're in love. You can understand that, can't you? I do, I do. But what about college? I've got plenty of time. Like you said, I'm young. I know I said that. And we're in love. I know you said that. Sam, there is a big difference between love and getting an education. But here's the thing. Yes, you're right. It captures something that is uniquely identifiable. But I do think that there's something subversive in this movie too, because you got to look at like, you know, Ashman, right? Cause a- this is the eighties and it's in a time in our history where we're very anti-gay. Not a great time. Yeah. Not a great time. Right. You know, uh, Reagan, not, not a fan 
not a fan of gay culture, right? Uh, ignoring, you know, AIDS, claiming it's a plague, right? And there's something about this girl. And on the surface, I get it's a princess story. But there's something about this mermaid where she doesn't want to conform to the society's norms. In her society, she's told, oh, you have to perform for your father and sing and dance. And she's like, I want to explore. I want to go out. I want to, I want to, I have a different identity than what I'm born into. And I was looking at the movie with this in mind and thinking like, I feel like that's a part of this. I feel like in a way, while I think a lot of people slag on this movie, because if you look at it very simply, it's like, oh, she gives up her voice to be with this man and uh, she gives up her powers. I think you can read it on one level like that, but I think you can read it on a different level as this powerful woman who is saying, fuck the patriarchy. Like, I have my own thing to do and is willing to kind of get it. And I don't know. I have to imagine that Ashman and Mencken coming out of Broadway are aware of what they're doing because to me... Ursula looks like a drag queen. And I mean that in the best way. Well, yeah, there are some really deep readings into the world of Ursula. I mean, they have said quite openly that she was inspired by Divine, performer I love. Oh my God, someday I would love to do the 1988 Hairspray with you. Love oh, yeah. Love that movie. Love love all of the John Waters is actually uh, that she's in. And then other people have also likened her to camp classic Norma Desmond, the animator. So even like, I see Norma Desmond in her from Sunset Boulevard. I watched Sunset Boulevard with the character Norma Desmond, and I studied the way she would move and the way she would react to William Holden, and that really helped out a lot. It would inspire me when I try to put some life into that character. And what those two characters have in common, you know, this range of divine to Norma Desmond to Gorley Swanson, is they're both women who are kind of performing this act of being women. You know, what should I look like to mm. be a woman? What is it to be a woman? And becoming these campy versions of womankind where you kind of don't believe anything they say about what men think about women and you don't even know if they believe it, but they're just sort of saying, oh yeah, this is what men think women should be and I'm going to make almost a joke of it, a lampoon of it. I mean, the way that she talks about the relationship between the sexes in the Poor Unfortunate Soul number, great number, is on one level manipulative, on another level dismissive, on a third level, I don't even think she believes it, but it's so fascinating. No more talking, singing, zip. But without my voice, how can I? You'll have your looks, your pretty face, and don't underestimate the importance of body language. <laughs> the men up there don't like a lot of blabber. They think a girl who gossips is a bore. Yes, on land it's much preferred for ladies not to say a word. And after all, dear, what is idle prattle for? Come on, then, not all that impressed with conversation. True gentlemen avoid it when they can. But they don't in swoon and fawn on a lady who's withdrawn. It's she who holds her tongue who gets a man. Come on, you unfortunate soul. I think what she's doing there is walking this line of teaching her how to perform as a woman and also embracing like stereotypes that if you play into them, you'll get what you want, right? Like that, like it's manipulation on some level too. It's like, here's how you game the system. At the same time, Ursula is gaming her to get what she wants. Exactly. 
And that reading, you know, that's in this about like, it's about a girl who gives up everything for a man. The movie very clearly says that doesn't work. I really disagree with that reading. She gives up her voice and in giving up her voice, the man does not fall in love with her. The man is like, I don't recognize you. It's hard to bond with you and you can't talk. You're really acting like a four-year-old girl who doesn't understand anything and I can't communicate you. And it's sort of hard for him to love a four-year-old girl and want to make out with her, essentially, because she's just acting like a crazy person. And it's when he hears a woman with a voice who is able to talk to him that he does fall for her. And I feel like the movie bungles out a little bit because, like, Vanessa, very bizarre name for, like, the Ursula's, like, human creation. I had to look it up. I was like, Vanessa. That just feels like an (laughs) 80s bully name. But technically, Vanessa is a name that goes back to like 1712. Jonathan Swift invented it, but I was like, Vanessa, seriously? I really wish this movie hadn't added the extra layer where Vanessa uses her sea necklace to bewitch the prince and turns him into a zombie. Because to me, it's so much more interesting that he's like, she has that voice I love because he's in love with her from the beginning when he knows her voice. He wants a woman who can talk to him. There is something about it too, you know, as we're playing into stereotypes and what men want, what men don't want, it's like, there's a joke there, which is the dog gets it, but the man doesn't, right? The dog knows that that's the woman who saved him because they look at each other. He sees her eyes, but the guy is so fucking dumb on a, in a way that he can't, <laughs> he can't believe it until he hears her fucking voice. It's like, like he needs like double confirmation. Like he needs to hear the exact same thing, you know, that, oh, oh, you know, like he needs to hear that before he can (laughs) like commit to her, which is so like, it just shows like, yeah, he's a fucking dumb, dumb. I mean, he is a fucking dumb, dumb. The dog gets, again, the dog gets it. And the dog is not a special dog. That's a regular, it's not like Sebastian the crab who. He seems to have a lot. He talk and does a job. This dog is dog. Dog doesn't talk, doesn't do anything. That's a dog dog. (laughs) Well, yeah, no wonder Sebastian's like, sucks to be on land. Everybody hates you. They want to eat you. And he should have added, and you can't talk. But like, to that point, everything you're saying makes me think what Vanessa slash Ursula does is take this voice filter and then convince the prince that she is the person he should fall in love with. It is basically... From the sea coming out and inventing catfishing, huh. right? Yeah, <laughs> she's that is. original catfish. Yeah, sea witching. Yeah. yeah, she's sea witching. She's sea witching. And I mean, to me, that is where like the movie lacks something because we almost never have any chance to believe in their relationship. Do they get along? What do they talk about? Who cares? They don't even have time to have a relationship. He literally sees this woman, hears her voice, is like, "That's one I'm marrying." I mean, on every level. There's some flawed relationship things here, but also I think it's a commentary on men. You know, I think this movie does have commentary on men. And I think it's like, yeah, they're so dumb that they just race into something without any. Like he's like, let's get married today at noon. I need to get married at noon. Oh, you're not. He got to get laid, man. He's like, (laughs) I've been waiting. I've been waiting. I mean, but it's hilarious because Ursula is basically promising her in the poor, unfortunate souls number that she's going to give her these legs. And when they show what the legs look like in that first glowing kind of bubble image, and then when she lands, it's like, Ariel, I promise I will make you a trucker mudflap girl. You want to be a trucker mudflap girl? Every man wants a trucker mudflap girl. Here you go. That is 
hands down the illustration they're using. Oh, well, I mean, but you can also go a step further and say before you even see her legs, you see what she's done to the other mer- people in the community. Oh, you, you're fat, so I made you skinny. You want to be buff. Like, it's it's all these... She's a plastic surgeon. Well, yes. And it's like yeah. what, like, it's, it's, it is about body image and body dysmorphia. Like, what I think what this movie is doing is saying that is not the important thing, right? But people get so caught up in that. And that's how they only get to see love is like, did you fulfill this, like, visual requirement for me? Then it will work. It's like, why can't these two mer people connect? They, they know each other. But if you're hot and you're hot, then it will work. It's a very interesting idea, like that. I think is, it's saying it does, like it's it it's not to last. It's not it's it won't last. That that's based on such a fleeting moment of yeah. of connection. Yeah, Ursula isn't inventing superficiality. She's just capitalizing on superficiality, shaking her boobs at the camera, and so she can get, get power. power. I mean, and then if you want to go a step further, let's just keep on going a step further and be like, she's essentially advertising, right? Because she's saying, <laughs> "I'm selling you this image of what you can be. You know, buy this, drink this, do this, and if you do that, you're going to give me money, and then I become rich based on your unhappiness with yourself." And I mean. Her rich is, you know, eventually her big plan is to get the king, who also is a dum-dum, you know, to get his uh, scepter, which is very powerful. I mean, she's essentially, I would say, whoever the mysterious doctor is who works on the Kardashian family. Because that's basically what this is. All of Triton's daughters have names that start with A. I mean, really, they all have names that start with A. And then they all are like beautiful and made over. I mean, it is of an image conscious society. The very first mayor person we see is a mayor man. And we're straight up like, look at his abs and Triton. Triton's always hitting the gym. Triton's probably steroidal. Triton only cares about showing off his abs. And where's and where's where is Triton's wife? Right? Where is she? I mean, okay, there is a whole prequel to this. Oh God, that they made in two thousand eight, I think. Okay. In the prequel, it's like Little Mermaid Flashdance, essentially, where like Ariel's mom dies when she's a kid, so Triton gets all sad and he bans music, and he's like so aggro about banning music that he finds out that Sebastian and Flounder are hanging out in this underground music club. A little weird, because I think of Flounder as a child. But they're hanging out in this club. And when he finds out that they're hanging out and listening to music, he throws them in prison. What? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so Triton's, I mean, he's just like a abtacular douche nozzle, to be honest. Well, yeah, and I just think that there is something about this idea. You know, you talked about, you know, Disney having this collection of stuff and like I got one of everything. But isn't it neat? Isn't Wouldn't it you neat? think my collection's complete? But no, I need Hulu. And then everything else. First of all, more of that, please. And second of all, <laughs> a- am I thinking about this the right way and saying, like, is she in the closet? Is that a closet that she's in where she has all of her where she can really be herself? Oh, you mean a literal grotto closet? Yeah. Where she is herself. I mean, 
I don't know if I would believe that she's necessarily in love with Eric because he's like just straight up the first human she's ever seen. If the first human she'd ever seen was a beautiful woman, she might have fallen in love with her too. Right. Okay. Why don't I, like to me, it's like, I, I don't think that the little mermaid is gay. Or she could be, whatever. I, like, I don't even think sexuality is necessarily playing a giant role in it. I mean, I would say she's human sexual. Right. I I, I think the, <laughs> I think that more to the point of she can't show the outside world what she cares about, right? Like, it's not like about sex. It's about, it, or, or attraction. It, it's more about like, I have to hide this part of myself because it's not accepted in society. So when she's flopping on the rock, and the wind is in her hair. It's like her, I'm coming out yeah, well, of she the want, sea, and here I am. Yeah, I mean, yeah, she's longing. She's looking into a world that she wants to be a part of. She wants to, and I think at the end, you know, obviously a lot of people are there for her wedding, and I think it was pretty rude for them to get married on that top deck because clearly a lot of those mer people couldn't get up there to get a good view. Maybe just have an open boat or do it do it a little bit more on land. Yeah. Like get these mermy people a better view. The dad's got to come up on a, like a water spout. Yeah, glass bottom boat, man. Not the yeah, hard. Let's do it. Um, then they'd be looking up their skirts, up skirt shots. It's upsetting, you know, leaks, whatever. But the um, I mean, this movie is allegedly very very horny, so it fits. Uh, uh, but I do think that there is something about like her ability to say, I want human legs. I want to be in this other world. It's not like she's losing anything about herself. She's just embracing a different world that she wants to be a part of. She herself is not changing. She's not giving up anything. Her giving up her mermaid tail isn't giving up anything, in my opinion. That's just saying, like, hey, I used to live in New York. Now I live in L.A. Like, I'm I'm making a change. Like, certain things I don't need anymore. But it's not, I'm not, as a human being, she's not changing. She so much wants to make this change that she's willing to give up her voice. Not to win a man, but just to have the experience of being there. Like, and that to me, that desperation to me is really interesting to be like, she's so desperate that she will give up something that's such a part of her identity just to be around something that feels more natural to her. I mean, that makes me think of a time that I had to interview Kristen Stewart for one of the Twilight movies. Mm -hmm. And she said, I know that my character, Bella Swan, gets all of this grief for being like some sort of passive, lovesick ninny who would sacrifice anything to be with Edward. But she said, I see that character as somebody brave enough to go against the status quo, that getting married when you're that young is ridiculous to do. But she believes in herself and she believes in her passion for this man. And she knows what she wants so much. She is willing to go against the grain and do things that nobody else believes in and accepts because she's so certain of what she wants to do in life. And that is really similar to this. For me, it's harder because I think Ariel's kind of a bossy ninny sometimes. Like, she's, I don't love Ariel. I don't think I'd want to be her friend. She's kind of mean to flounder all the time. Like, he almost dies for her a lot. And she's like, oh, you, you little guppy. I, I also feel like that's just kind of like a um, an issue more in like mer mer people fish relations. It's a little bit, yeah, it's complicated. <laughs> and, you know, yeah. they have a different thing. I mean, she is 16 and pretty immature.
Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispy, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Want to connect with a family member who doesn't speak your language? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning through an intuitive process. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. And with a lifetime membership, you have access to all 25 offered languages. Get started today. Visit rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 to get 50% off your lifetime membership now. That's rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 for 50% off. I guess what I would say about Ariel is we don't really know much about her beyond her want to be out of the situation that she's in. Like, that is her defining characteristic. You know, and the movie is short, and the movie moves plot quickly. And for majority of the movie, she doesn't have a voice. So it's really hard to see her past her primary want, which is simply... I don't want to be here. I want to be somewhere else. And when I'm at that other place, I'm loving it so much. Or at least that's the way I see it. Like, I don't, I don't, like, if you ask me, like, what Belle is, I can describe Belle a little bit more than I can describe Ariel. Like, Belle is a human being. I understand what she is. Ariel doesn't seem like she even likes singing. She seemingly doesn't. Or she doesn't want to sing the way that they make her sing. I don't know. I just don't know that much about her. something that she doesn't seem to care about. Because we know yeah. that Sebastian's like, she never shows, shows up to practice. She doesn't show up to the to the actual performance that matters. Yeah. And, and we know in a way that she loves humans, humankind, dryland kind, before she even loves a particular man on yeah. it. And in a way, that is the argument that she knows where she should be. And it's not all about a man. She wants to be there before she meets the man. That's why I'm like, it is funny that Eric's just the very first human she sees. Would it have made a difference if she had seen any other human first? And that is her element of choice that she looks at him and she's like, you are hot. As weird as it is, that is more progressive than the other princesses to date. We're sort of like, how lame, she's boy crazy. Snow White didn't really get that. You know, Cinderella didn't really get that. Sleeping Beauty was asleep. So it is its own thing here. But like... Do you think that this relationship lasts? I mean... Yeah, they're going to be like kind of vapid together, right? It's not like he's an intellectual who's going to be bored. He, you know, they have nothing to talk about. But that, I guess I, yeah, I think that she rushed into getting married. Like, I feel like the the more interesting version of the story, and I'm very curious about the remake. And I think the remake, they're speaking very much about how they want to make some changes so she's not as passive, et cetera, et cetera. Like, I bet you, knowing nothing of Little Mermaid, the live action remake, but I bet you they don't get married at the end. And I think that actually would be a smart choice uh, because to me, the victory is just become human. Meet this guy. Figure out if you like him. Go off into the sunset or go off on a date together. I don't need to know if you get married, but at least you have an opportunity to appeal to him as who you are and he gets to appeal to you. And then you can make a decision from there. Like It's interesting that marriage is so twite- tightly intertwined. Um, whereas like even Ursula's like, you need to get a kiss of true love. Like you need, like, it's like, well, why, why can't she just be? (laughs) 
It's true. And it's interesting. There's like passive reading of Ariel. I mean, did you hear about this whole controversy that was happening in Princeton, like in 2018? No. There's this long-term Princeton acapella group. You know, it's all male and their name is the Tiger Tones. And one of their longtime hits that they perform for people is Kiss the Girl. This became a whole thing. Like there's a big editorial in the Princeton paper that was like, the song Kiss the Girl is horrible. The editorial writer said it was, quote, more misogynistic and dismissive of consent than it is cute. And that the song launches a heteronormative attack on women's rights to oppose the romantic and sexual liberties taken by men further inundating the listener with themes of toxic masculinity. To which I kind of want to say, Ariel spends the whole scene puckering her lips and being like, please kiss me. For the love of God, please kiss me. And yeah, you're watching this, and it's a lot of animals just chanting, kiss, kiss, kiss. A lot of pressure there. But the Tiger Tones did stop performing it. And there's a second reason why, which is like as they would sing the song, one of the things they would do is they would drag a girl out of the audience and then they would drag a guy out of the audience and then they would sing around them and dance. Uh. And then at the end, they would stare at them with expectancy and see if they would kiss each other. Here's a clip of it where they're pulling out a girl who actually seems to think this is very, very funny. But yeah, the the kissing part, I think, was like the final cherry on the themes of toxic masculinity. But it just still seemed to me to be like, you're you're overlooking Ariel to think she doesn't want to be kissed right there. She wants to be kissed so hard. Well, I mean, that's that's like her goal. Her want is to do that. And I feel like I mean, this is the way I read it in the in the musical. It's like her friends are saying kiss, kiss, because if you don't, she'll be ever forever cursed. Right. And so I, I I believe that her friends are looking out for her. Like they're trying to like gild the lily. Like, hey, can we get this in your head? Because it would be great to it would be great to do this, you know. Yeah. And this is one of the only scenes we even get of like seeing what Eric is like when he's having a conversation. And it's like. Oh, he just doesn't like animals? Wow. <laughs> Somebody should find that poor animal and put it out of its misery. Cool. Killing birds because they sound bad. How are they ever going to get along? He eats fish and he's like, screw that bird. It's ugly. Well, don't you think, too, like, this is a long history of people misinterpret lyrics, right? Like, they, they get caught up in songs and you know and it's hard it's hard because it's saying one thing but you have to like think about it more and this is what i think this movie is saying and there's something about this movie where it's like girl likes boy wants to be kissed by boy gets kissed by boy marries boy end of the story but we're talking about a lot deeper meaning here and it's and it's sort of like what they're telling you and what they're trying to show you and i feel like even like born in the usa right it's like that was like we're playing that at political rallies like we're patriots you know and really it's a song about like how america treats vietnam veterans you know it just it has a great fucking hook 
You know, it's it's the antithesis of the American dream, but it's a rock number. So it's hard for people to like see what it is. It's, you know, it's like, it's in a weird way, like what even Rambo was. Like people think about Rambo and they go like, yeah, he fucking kicks ass. It's like, no, there's a Vietnam veteran who turned home and people are like not letting him you not celebrating him, kicking him out. Like he feels yeah. like a, you know, he's he feels a like an enemy. better in getting pursued by the cops. Like, yeah. Oh. And then he becomes, he does then become what people wanted him to become. But a lot of the times it's hard for people, myself included, to separate it. Like born in the USA, because it is played at a political rally, you're like, yeah, you, when you put something to interpretation, it can become whatever it wants to be too. I mean, at a certain point as an artist, you have to release it. That said, to believe that every line a character says should be taken exactly at face value, that every song lyric they sing should be taken at face value is to forget how we communicate to each other. You know, we don't communicate with exactly how we feel from our deepest part of our subconscious expressing ourselves literally at all times. The way humans talk to each other in real life is like layered with all sorts of subtext. I mean, my God, I don't know why. I think I have Ursula on the brain, but I'm just like thinking of somebody coming up to you and being like, do these pants make my ass look big? What do you want? What What would a human say to that? What do you want your fictional characters to say to that? I guess we don't want our fictional characters to even worry if their ass looks big. We want them to, to be like role models of thinking all asses are wonderful, which is also true in an ideal. But sometimes I will change my clothes because I think my ass looks a little big. Actually, I used to, but now big asses are fine. So now I'm fine. But, you know, rinse, repeat. <laughs> Fashions change. You know, I, (laughs) I think it is a, I think this is the, the issue that we run across a lot in culture, which is, I believe that the subversive comedy of, you know, Ashman and Mencken coming off of Little Shop of Horrors, which is also a subversive musical. And it's, it is about like so many other things in a giant plant that eats people, right? Uh, there's abuse in there. There is, you know, uh, there's masculinity issues. There's there's so many things going on in that. I would find, I'd be very hard pressed for them to make a straight down the middle princess story. But at the same time, I would believe that they could package a simple princess story with a deeper, more interesting, more layered meaning. And the lyrics are surprising you. And that to me is what Little Shop of Horrors did. It, it takes something as like a face value. Little Shop of Horrors is a horror musical about a plant who eats people or a plant that needs blood to survive, right? It's like a Frankenstein monster or Dracula and Renfield, whatever it is. And we have become dumber. And you talk about Twitter. And, and a lot of times when I think about Twitter, I think like how people lose what sarcasm is. People don't get tone anymore. People take a lot of things at face value. And it's hard to be subversive when people can't even understand to our point about Blazing Saddles. It's like, oh, you can't make that again. Well, yeah, if you're looking at it simply because they say the N-word in it, but like, that's not what that movie is. That movie isn't just a freewheeling N-word experiment. That is a satire, social comedy, but people only look at one part of it. And I think it's like, and you miss the larger thing of what it's saying. I think that's super true. And I love drawing the parallels between this and Little Shop of Horrors because they're really similar. And in fact, the character that I think bridges it really well is um, Audrey, you know, yeah, Audrey, our heroine singing in that song. You know, she has that song really early on in Little Shop of Horrors about what she wants of life. And what she's saying is she just wants a little house. She wants to get married. She wants these like 
itemized things that to her signify contentment and success. Mm. Matchbox of her own, a fence, a real chain link, a grill out on the patio, disposal in the sea, a washer and a dryer, and an ironing machine. The track tells that we share somewhere that's green. I mean, that song is essentially part of your world. You know, listing the things she wants, saying what she dreams of. As they were writing part of your world, they even called that song, you know, somewhere that's dry. Because they were just like, it's the same song. It's our parallel version of it. And it is true. And so I guess it comes down to, do you respect that this character actually wants what she says she wants? Do you respect her as a person who has her own desires? And if so, Godspeed. Go get your washer dryer. You know, go be go be on land. But if and you're also way, like, is does she only want this because it's what society tells her she wants, or does she want this legitimately? But is she modeling something unhealthy to, that audiences shouldn't want? Should sixteen year old girls watch this and be like, I don't want to get married? That's crazy. Also fair, but those are two different conversations. Well, I also think it's like, are like, is America the prince? You know, do we only see something? <laughs> You know, do we only recognize that this is the girl that we love if she does the exact same thing that she did in the moment of distress? Ah, ah. <laughs> like, that's the only way that he like, oh, right, that's her. Oh, well, yeah. I mean, Cinderella, dude's like, now nah, she got to fit this shoe. I won't recognize her face. Is it the shoe? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. Exactly. I mean, so basically fairy tales, we talk about them as like, Man, they sure make princesses look pathetic, but they're really like they make men look stupid. I I look at this movie a little bit differently, and I was glad that I read a little bit before because I was like, I don't know what I'm going to have to say about this movie. And I started thinking about it a little bit differently because I think when I saw it as a kid, it was not my favorite Disney movie uh, by a long shot. You know, this is a movie that I feel like uh, women of my age have a a real connection to and 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 they knew all the songs and the songs are bangers by the way like let's just hit that out of the park too the songs are great for sure and i feel like in a way they've repeated this formula a little too much at this point where i'm like we don't need them all to sound so broadway but here i feel like the songs actually have a good range of tones you know i i like that they shifted sebastian the crab from being british to being from trinidad because they're like if we have a character who's able to kind of bring in more of that like Caribbean music style, these songs will feel more modern. I mean, we're just coming out of like Cocktail came out like the year before Aruba, Jamaica. Right. They're capitalizing on that nonsense. But it works. It makes this song, it makes the musical have more diversity than where I feel like they've gone today, which is just like big ballad, big ballad, big ballad, big ballad. Pretty boring. Broadway works for a reason. I guess what I'm saying about this is I'm glad I looked at it a little bit differently. And I think what I'm nervous about is all this hand wringing about how we have to update the little mermaid because in a way, what I fear about the remake and who cares about a remake because there's a show about the original movie uh, is, are we losing the subversiveness to make it appear? And I'm going to use the word I didn't want to use earlier, but oh no, I is it going to you know, be woke? I, I know. And it's like, and it, but, but this is to me that word that is, I mean, it's such an interesting word. And I, this, we could have a whole podcast on that, but I think it, 
does it become a target when it's not subvert? Like when you're not being clever about it, does that become the the dialogue around it? And that to me feels like it does a disservice to every part of it. It's like, well, if you're trying to make it more accessible or you're trying to update it and you're trying to make sure the themes, you know, like, cause people say the original is sexist. It's problematic. It X, Y, and Z. And it's like, well, instead of like making major changes in the songs, which they did do, can't you figure out a way to put the subversiveness in it? So like, if it's already there, do you need to change it? And I, I guess maybe it's like, or are we just dumbing it down? Are we dumbing down something that's already smart? And that's what I guess I'm worried about. And I don't want the conversation to be about the changes of it because it would be like, oh, this is an interesting story. But if it feels too, it still should feel like a fairy tale, right? It should still feel like a a princess story. Well, yeah. I mean, if the new Little Mermaid, which I've been so dragging my feet about RSVPing for the press screening, I just don't want to. I just don't yeah. want to. I'm just so tired of these Disney remakes. But if like Ariel's clapping her fins and being like, by the way, I don't need a man. Whatever. Sure. I just don't know why everything has to be like written down and underlined. And also I kind of right. want to say like. That's it's, the thing that I feel yeah. like. It's like, why can't you? Like to me, this is a victory story. It's about a a woman or a girl becoming a woman who doesn't want to live in the society that she has been forced to live in and do the things that she is expected to do, who then basically sells her soul just for a chance, an opportunity, a a moment to breathe that air. Because truthfully, and this maybe goes back to the suicide of it all, it is, it was better to spend a moment living in that world than none at all. And she gets to have her life. Now, where it gets complicated to me is the marriage. Because it's like, again, I don't know who either of these characters are. And I don't think either of them are interesting enough to dictate marriage. But maybe to your point, they're both boring fucks. And uh, that's cool. (laughs) Yeah, they're like people that I would see like suggested to me on Instagram. who are just like, oh, my God, it's our house. And we're influencers. And they're Mm. so lame. I mean, but that said, like, also, if we're going to single out. Little Mermaid as the Disney film that takes a heroine and like scraps her voice that basically takes a lead character who's a woman and makes her shut up. That's all Disney does. If we can be for real about that. Princess and the Frog turns her into the frog. Same thing with um, Turning Red turns her into a panda. All Disney does is figure out ways to like take their lead characters and then turn them into an animal so they can't talk as much. I mean, they even do it as like in soul. They're always figuring out ways to get their leads to speak quiet. And I don't know why that is. And it usually happens to women, but it also happened to the dude from soul. And I do find that strange. And it is not, it is not only the little mermaid that this happens to. I will always be mad about brave. Brave just made me furious. I got mad at with Tiana. I was like, Oh great. You have your first like black princess. And now she's a frog and she's just like frogging around. What? But then when they did it also to Brave, I was so mad because ridiculous. And now they just keep doing it. They just keep doing it. So I'll always rant about this. Not cool, Disney. And they're doing that with news stories. They don't even have to make them shut up. At least like Little Mermaid has history in this going back to Hans Christian Andersen. It is a ridiculous trend that they have to let go of. Yeah, I I, I think that. You know, we're in, again, we're in this moment of reckoning. What will be the future of Disney? What will break the mold a little bit? I think that Pixar broke the mold. Then I think Frozen kind of brought it back to something like this. But then I think it, ne- it needs another shakeup. I, I don't know if it's the theater or the, the streamification of Disney that's made them less must-see. But I haven't felt, 
I haven't felt as excited about a Disney project in this world for uh, for a little bit. Um, so I'm wondering, like, when will that next one be? Like, when will be the one that I want to watch multiple times? I really like Soul. I thought that was good. I thought Luke was good, too. I thought Encanto was great. I, but I'm like, okay. Like, it's it, it, what you're saying to me is like, I think what you're saying is like, we're just doing variations. It's like, all right, this is red. This is yellow. It's like, it's, it's all the same. It's just slightly different coloring. And that I'm getting bored by. And I like, look, I look at Elemental and I think to myself, that just, it looks like, inside out to me. I, I don't even know. And then I'm like, what is this? It's like, oh, well, fire and water can't match. It's, it, you know, it's very much like, I guess, a Romeo and Juliet story. I just feel like there is, I don't know. I don't, I, I, I'm feeling like itchy for that new thing that kind of breaks the mold. Yeah. And I mean, I will say out of this, you know, Disney Renaissance ascension, The Little Mermaid is not my favorite. I know I'm coming in a little bit hot because I get annoyed when things get so reduced to a thing that's clearly wrong from what the movie is actually saying. But Beauty and the Beast is hands down to me the greatest of this stretch. I just, I love Belle and I cry every single time in the end. I always cry at Beauty and the Beast. Hmm. What I can't necessarily separate is my love for what Aladdin did for me. Like that made me enjoy a Disney cartoon as a kid. My want to watch Aladdin is small. And again, you know, I may have to agree with you that Beauty and the Beast is probably the one that is the best of all worlds. Much more beautiful. It takes a Much, leap in yes. beauty from here, for oh, sure. Oh, 100%. The camera angles in this don't feel quite as, like, movie-ish to me. The frame. Yeah. Beauty and the Beast feels like a movie. There's beautiful things, like when she's in her little grotto. I love the way that they have shadows and light playing on everything. That's beautiful. Love all the bubbles. But it feels like Beauty and the Beast. It's a, it's like the leap that we were talking about from Blazing Saddles to Young Frankenstein. That's where I feel like it's like even more of a beautiful film. And and I'll also say this. Story-wise, this is a lean, mean fighting machine. It feels like it comes in like an hour and 20 minutes. It, so much so that I rewound certain parts. Be, wow, what did I miss here? Like, like the bad part of this movie, I think, is nothing resonates. Because it's like, bam, bam, bam. It's almost like, you know the beats, so here they are. And it's like, so in one way, fun, subversive, because we already know the beats, so we can kind of just dive into it and we don't linger. But I do think that Beauty and the Beast tells a more compelling story. Yeah, I mean, I love how short it is. But the love story in Beauty and the Beast, so much stronger. You really see Belle and the Beast fall in love. You're actually rooting for that relationship by the time it happens. And here you're like, sure, 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 whatever. Get married by the priest who everybody says has a boner, doesn't have a boner. It's actually his knee. Go ahead. It's great. I don't really care. To me, by the end of this film, I'm really only invested in the drama of Sebastian, who I think is the greatest character. He's the one who I think is like suffering from the most of a dilemma. He wants to be an artist, man. He just wants to write symphonies. How do I get myself into these situations? I should be writing symphonies. Not tagging along after some headstrong teenager. And yet he's stuck babysitting this girl. He's basically put it, being put in like the position of being hired to be like a minder of a child actress. You know, can I keep this child off of drugs is what he's been thrown into in like this era. Doesn't get to do his own artistry. Forced to go live up on land where everybody wants to kill him. 
everybody's like excited about the idea of killing him, has to run for his life and, you know, from the chef's kitchen with, my God, I love the Les Poissons number. <laughs> les Poissons, Les Poissons, how I love Les Poissons. Love to chop and to serve little fish. First I cut off their heads and I pull out their bones. I'm a weak, ça c'est toujours délicieux. Les poissons, les poissons, with a cleaver, I hack them in two. I pull out what's inside and I serve it outside. God, I love little fishes, don't you? Basically, Sebastian gives up his dreams, his artistry, his whole job as a like creative force, and then like has to live in murder zone because he really cares about this girl. Poor Sebastian. I'm very much on his side here. It's really rough. Why should he have to be stuck on land, man? Let him go back. Well, look, I mean, should should she have a keeper? I mean, why does she have to have a keeper? I mean, but yes, he is, he is constantly in danger here. This is a really interesting conversation because I feel like as this movie comes out, there's going to be a lot more conversation about The Little Mermaid. I'm very curious to see what it's what the reviews will be of this film because everything that I know about Disney live-action remakes is they're the exact same movie, right? They're just live-action. Maybe a flourish here and there, but ultimately it's the same story and it's iconic imagery that you've seen animated now seeing live-action. And whether yeah. or not that's good or bad, I don't know, but... I mean, from the images we can see of Flounder being turned from bright yellow and blue to, oh, he has scales now. I Not really great. Uh, upset about this. Uh, ha- this first one brings, we know it brings back Disney, but does it get reviewed in a way that it also is a hit for Disney? Or is it just a uh, an audience hit? Yeah, it was a huge hit. Like, two reviewers at the time when this movie came out, they were like, oh, Disney is actually back. This is closer to the Disney movies from, you know, a critic's own youth than it is to anything that they had seen from Disney in a really long time. Almost every critic lost their minds, really loved it. Sure, pointed out some bits with the story, but pretty much this movie was wildly acclaimed. The only negative review I could really find from the time was the Washington Post, who just said, as movie making, The Little Mermaid is only passable. Even at its highest points, it cannot claim a place next to even the least of the great Disney classics. They seem to have aimed for a primetime, family hour tone that undermines the more powerful undercurrents of the Anderson original. Uh, And then here I feel like they're a little off. They say, it's unlikely, for example, that many young kids will identify with Ariel's feelings of disenchantment and longing for another world. Because, frankly, she doesn't have much personality. The same is true of the handsome Prince, Prince Eric, who has a game show blandness about him. Do agree with that. And then it just says, accomplished but uninspiring. The Little Mermaid has enough to please any kid. All that's missing is the magic. This is really interesting. I, I, you know, I think that the, like, it feels to me what we've already said. This movie was a great step in the right direction. And I think many of the things that that reviewer just talked about was corrected. I also feel like I'm going back to my original statement that only Michael Eisner could have brought back Disney animation because he did it in a way that brought Hollywood into it. And not to say that the original movies aren't Hollywood, but you needed that sharp, savvy eye to kill at the box office. And I think that, you know, the reason why Roy Disney leaves because they're creatively bankrupt might be because they didn't have a push in the right direction. They they weren't going, they, they just wasn't working, you know? I mean, all Dogs Must Go to Heaven and Oliver and Company, I think, are similar too. I mean, I guess that's more Oliver to us, but, but it, like there, there was this like laziness to it. And it's like, and I think what this movie does 
is it elevates the genre to not just be a children's film, but adult films. And we've gone more and more in that direction that, you know, this idea that, and we were talking about it a couple months ago, uh, maybe not this Oscars, but the last Oscars. It's like animation isn't synonymous with children's. And I think that that's a, a distinction that unfortunately, by having the moniker of Disney attached to it, makes you think. And this is, a, I think, the first foray for a more four-quadrant picture, if you will, um, like the new family movie. And I think that that's actually really important. And I think that that's only something that somebody who cares about box office is going to bring to this product. I can totally agree with that. So how are we feeling about Little Mermaid overall? Are we sort of like, appreciate you exist, move on? We get a lot of Ashman and Mencken. That's great. To me, this is like, oh, we got to bring them back. Like, we got to do this again. Like, it, wa- it was refreshing. I think it was good. I think the difference of it at the time, this is A-plus material. But they bested themselves. It, the genre got better. I don't see this as a space-worthy movie because... This is a genre that is evolving. I don't know if I have the exact example of what that could be. I don't think this is as transformative as Snow White, you know, in the sense of what it did for animation in general. But I do think this is something that is a part of a larger conversation. And I think we had their Frozen conversation. You can put that in the mix here, too. I guess pick your poison, like which one you like the most. That may be a personal preference, but I don't think this is... I don't think this is firing on full thrusters. If I had to put this in a ring with Frozen, I would say Frozen wins over this. If I had to put Frozen in a ring with Beauty and the Beast, I think Beauty and the Beast wins. That's fair. You know? If I put Beauty and the Beast in a ring with Alice in Wonderland, probably my favorite. Mm. I think Alice wins just because of the creativity, but it is tough. It is tough. The emotions are stronger in Beauty and Beast, but the animation is so beautiful. And it's Alice. so beautiful. Is Alice in Wonderland a musical? There's a couple songs. I mean, like Painting the Roses Red and the Tea okay, Party yeah. Song and stuff. I, I guess this is also the what you said earlier, the musification, the Broadwayification, the Broadwayification yeah. of Disney movies. Because I think before, like, you know, they weren't musicals. They were animated films with songs in them. This is a musical. This is, that's why I think you've seen all these Disney films go to Broadway. Very easy transition. It feels like now they're just written already with Broadway in mind. They're just drafted right. from the DNA. Yeah. But that said, you know what I would love to do after this? Mm-hmm. I would like to do an 80s kids movie that I think is also about a young girl and her adventure and her journey and her like perhaps sexual awakening, young mm-hmm. teenager, but has that 80s darkness that I really, really find mesmerizing. I think we really got to do Labyrinth. I'm so excited you said that. This movie scared the shit out of me when I was a kid. This is a weird fucking movie. We got Muppets. We got Darkness. And we have, you know, I mean, David Bowie. Like, this is a a fun one. I haven't looked at this in a long time. Uh, I'm very excited, you know, to see a Jim Henson-directed film. It's not the Muppets, but it's different. And Jennifer Conley, also different. Like, we talked about the 80s heroine. We talked about the 80s idea of like what a rebellious young girl is. And I think you see Alyssa Milano a lot. I think that Jennifer Connelly is different. 
But I don't know. Let's talk about it. I can't wait to talk about it. Uh, obviously, uh, this is available wherever you want to get your movies. You can you can watch it on Pluto TV for free. Uh, you can watch it on YouTube. Apple TV, Redbox, Voodoo. Uh, you can also check out Canopy, which is a free service from your local public library. Listen to the trailer. You have 13 hours in which to solve the labyrinth before your baby brother becomes one of us forever. The magic of Jim Henson. The wizardry of George Lucas. Labyrinth. All right, Amy, I like this labyrinth idea. We also have some special episodes coming up. We're going to be talking to Adam McKay. We're also going to be talking about Star Trek. We have a lot of fun stuff coming up. And you know what? To pass the time in between episodes, you got to purchase yourself a deck of unspooled playing cards. Unspooled playing cards are beautifully designed by Kim Troxell. You can get them at the podswag.com. It's podswag.com. They are gorgeous. They look good uh, on any card table or regular table. Bring them with you on your family or your solo summer trips. And if you want to go back and listen to us talk about Snow White and Frozen, uh, we do that. And and of course, a little shop of horrors. You can just look for any of those episodes uh, to kind of hear a longer take of what we've been wrestling with here, Disney and music and this and the status of these movies in our popular culture. I love it. And if you've made it this far, here's a little treat. This is from a recent restaging of Little Mermaid, where the voice of Sebastian is done by Shaggy. And you can really hear the growl in his voice. Oh, under the sea, under the sea, a little bit don't wear it sweater, take it from me. Up on the shore, they work all day, out in the sun, they slave away. Why we devoting full time to floating under the sea? Well, Amy, until next week, but a big thank you to our producer, Josh Richmond, our associate producer, Jessica Cisneros, our engineer, Casey Holford, our EPs, Cody Fisher and Colin Anderson, our MVP, Molly Reynolds, our theme song by Michael Cassidy, our fan art by Kim Troxall. Please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, rate, review, and follow us on Apple and also on Amazon. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram, and you can talk about all these movies on the Paul Shear Discord. Just go to discord.gg slash Paul Shear. Unspooled t-shirts are available at tpublic.com slash unspooled. You can hear past episodes of the show and bonuses like screen tests on Stitcher Premium. And for the official API, that's the Paul and Amy Institute list of our favorite films that we've ever done from the show, you can head on over to unspooledpod.com. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.